to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Ryan, and this is the podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We're presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, which is a nonprofit education and advocacy group bringing together like-minded people working to shape our city. On today's episode, we have a fantastic guest. He has been one of the longest standing members with IDEA since I've been with the organization. And his name is Don Tolzma. He is the president of Timberhouse. And of course, you have seen them on social media because their projects are beautiful. And because Don really does prioritize marketing and social media, which is fantastic because I like to look at an inside of different houses. Um, so I'm not going to spoil anything more because Ryan does a fantastic job giving you all his background in the episode. Uh, so why don't we just go into definitions? The first definition I have for you all today is she sheds, which I am terrible at those like limericks. So she shells, she shells by the seashore. Uh, so when Don was saying this in the episode, I was like, I don't know what this is, but I'm glad I don't have to say it. And then here we are in the, in the definition saying it. Um, so if you don't know what it is, it's a small building separated from the main house, specifically reserved uh, for the use of an adult woman so she can relax and pursue her interests. And immediately I thought of Gilmore Girls uh, when Lorelai redid her garage and painted it and I am re-watching Gilmore Girls right now so this is why I thought about it <laughs> <laughs> appropriate yeah what would you put in your she shed um I think I would want it to be used all year round uh so it would have to be insulated so it would have to be worth it because it sounds like it would be decently expensive so probably an office and an art studio I don't know what would you do if you had a she shed man shed <laughs> Out in the backyard. Yeah, so I, I, I'm I'm not sure actually. Uh, most of my activities can be done indoors. Uh, I guess it would be nicer to be outside to outside the house to maybe do it in a shed. I'm not sure. Like I I have a garage and it's full of like my uh, like I, I have tools for kind of woodworking projects. So I feel like a shed would be just kind of duplicating that. Um, I'm not, I, it would be, it would be small, like woodworking stuff. I'm no good at it, but that's definitely where I want to go. So yeah, I would make a, a she shed for myself for some woodworking stuff if I had to. I also think it's just a funny name, like where yeah. it came from she shed. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, but maybe just like, you know, personal shed. <laughs> yeah. Just a spot to do what you want. A she cave. A she cave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, second definition, uh, we talk a little bit about garden suites and garage suites. Um, what's the difference? Well, in the zoning bylaw, there is no difference. They're all called garden suites, even though some are uh, with a parking space inside and some are without. They're just in the back of the the lot, and they're just basically a second small tiny house in the on the on the same lot. So they're they're basically the same. The same rules apply to both. So when we're talking in the episode about garage suites or garden suites. Um, we're talking about the same thing, okay? Nothing else is a fine, but I would rather have a garden suite uh, than a she shed because then I could offset my mortgage, which sounds infinitely better than a paint studio that I would not use often enough. <laughs> <laughs> and you could sleep in your studio. There's and you could have dinner. You could, you know, like you're painting or whatever you're doing in your art studio, and then you can take a step aside uh, when you're getting frustrated. Go make yourself a snack and uh, have a little nap, and then go right back at it. Yeah, you're basically living in your office. Isn't that what we yeah. all want? That's what we're all doing right now. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, let's get into the episode and see what Don has to say. So on today's episode, we have Don Tolzma. He's the president of Timberhouse Developments. He's been in the construction industry since the late 90s, mostly with uh, Lincolnburg Master Builders. You might have heard of them. He's on the board of directors for CHBA. He's a very active and proud member of IDEA, and he is the uh, garden suite king of Edmonton. Don, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Now, before we jump in, I got to ask you, uh, you are one of the um, kind of unique guests we have on this show, certainly among the three of us. You've actually skated at Roger's Place, scored a goal, had that goal commemorated by video and a player card. Is that right? That is correct. I have a rookie card. It's out there. Yeah. Walk me through that. And where can people get a copy of the video and the card? Well, the, the copies of the video and the card are not currently available. They're very rare to find. Um, but yeah, we, we did some work with Rogers Media, and Rogers was kind enough to allow uh, allow myself to show up for a fantasy camp for a day, and we were able to watch the Tampa Bay Lightning practice and watch the Edmonton Oilers practice and do an official NHL kind of workout before our, our pregame skate. We did a wonderful uh, little fantasy draft, which divided us into the whites and the blues, and at the time, we were very unaware that during this game that we were going to be recorded, and... Uh, had to watch our foolish selves skate live on TV, and it just kind of shows our age and our our foot speed. So we just kind of kicked the video into 1.5 speed, and then we look like NHL players. <laughs> so, but no, it was great. It was a good opportunity, and again, you you become who you surround yourselves with. And we were able to team up with Rogers Media on that one and do some do some marketing, and they were able to kind of give back to us. So it was a lot of fun. Now walk me through, all professional athletes say that they remember their first ever NHL goal. So walk me through your first goal here. Where were you standing? Was it a nice, uh, you know, uh, one-timer from the high slot top shelf? You put your stick on the ice for a nice tap in or uh, how did how did you score your first goal? No, it was a snap tip. Uh, it was definitely tipped in. Um, I did have a really nice assist. Uh, if you ever talked to Caleb Jansen from Rogers, uh, I set him up on the one-timer and he hit the top corner. Again, it was tipped. If you watch it, it was looked like it was in really slow motion. But uh, yeah, he, he buried that one top corner. Actually, did he hit the top corner or did he hit the post? He might have hit the crossbar, but it was really, really cool. And especially to watch it on the Jumbotron uh, in slow motion was really neat as well. I can't remember the gentleman who sings the national anthem for the Oilers, but he uh, he sung for us before the game, which was pretty cool. And then, uh, yeah, we had uh, not three refs or, or two refs and two linesmen, but we actually just had a one referee and had, a, had an official game, which has made a pretty a pretty unique experience. That is awesome. Okay, let's transition into the stuff we actually want to talk about. Uh, tell us about your journey to this point. So you started off as a framer, I think it was, and now you're the president of a building company. How did that go? Yeah, well, I turned from farmer to framer. Uh, I grew up, I was supposed to be a farmer and, and that didn't uh, pan out. My dad sold the cows when I was pretty young. I was 18 and uh, my uncle was actually working with Lincolnburg and doing all their decks and fences and basement framing and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of got on him with a kind of a part-time gig. Um, then that turned into more of a full-time gig. So I worked with him with, you know, that, that was in 1997, 98, 99. And then I ended up moving away uh, for a little bit in 2002. And uh, when I moved back, then Keith, my my uh, former boss at Lincolnburg, he called me up and asked me if I could work for him directly. So I started doing the same kind of thing I was doing with my uncle, working with them. And he asked me to be a site superintendent. And I told him that I uh, I didn't really want to be a site superintendent because I didn't like people. So <laughs> I just like to have my tool pouch on and just work, right? And uh, 
and he told me that he didn't care and he needed me to be a site super. So I became a site super and it was kind of, you know, not by the luck of the draw, but I think Keith saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And um, I was very, very hesitant to do so. But he told me that uh, everything that I didn't know he would teach me and everything that I did know, he would just continue to do it. I did know a lot of things on how not to do things based on the people that I worked with and, you know, at Lakenburg and things that I felt I could do a little bit better. And kind of as the, as the years grew on as a site superintendent, I just, the people became what I really enjoyed. And that's what I love about building houses today. Um, I love, you know, helping creating people's dreams and, and letting them move into their dream homes with, with our Timberhouse touch. I guess I'll, and one story I'll, I'll share with you guys was with Lankenberg. And there's the very first customer that I ever moved in. And it was a, it was an Asian couple in Rutherford, wonderful older couple, and they were downsizing. And I remember the house was perfect. I was very nervous to do my first closing, uh, my first walkthrough. And they came in and he kind of looked up and he said, why is the kitchen light over there? And I'm like, well, that's where it shows on the plan. And he says, well, that's our kitchen table. It's not going to work with that light. Can you move it? And I knew right from that moment that I needed to know these clients at the rough and stage or sooner than at the closing day or at the walkthrough. And that's the one thing that I think we, that where I left my legacy behind at Lincolnburg and we continue it to this day is that you meet those customers when you start building the house, not when you close the house. And it's very, very important to, for the clients to see that house, their dream, not just, you know, show up at the end and say, Oh, here you go. But no, they get to see the whole process. And if they want to see it at the foundation stage, they can come see it at the foundation stage. And I remember going back to Keith and saying, Keith, I said, I think we need to start doing rough, rough and meeting walkthroughs. And he says, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, we need to show these people their home before we cover it up with drywall in case they have any questions or if they have any specifics that they want to bring to the table. And he said, well, if you want to give them your cell phone number, you go right ahead. I'm not giving them mine. And he said, that's your choice. And I said, yeah, no problem. I said, I, that's great. And uh, back in, the t- in those days, not married, no kids, you know, you're able to devote that time, right? So it didn't matter what time the people called you, you, you answer the phone and you could deal with the issues. And by the time the walk in possession came, there was no issues. And that is how you build a house. And I think it's very, very important. Don, I, uh, I definitely didn't mean to laugh at you when you said you didn't think you liked people. But I, for all the time I've known you, you are one of the most people persons I've ever met in my life. And I can't ever imagine a time where you weren't like that. Uh, so obviously Keith saw it early on too. Uh, but I, I feel like even I'm sure your parents say the same thing about you. Yeah. And and it's, you know, you see yourself as a kid growing up and um, I was quite shy when I was younger in, in grade kindergarten, grade one, two, three, and, and that kind of thing. And uh, actually I lied. I didn't go to kindergarten, grade one, two, three. Um, but no, I, it, you, you grow as a person, right? And I think you become more comfortable with what you're doing. When you know you're good at something, you want to stick to doing that. And, and I think in today's day and age, you need to you need to continue to broaden your horizon. And I think that's the kind of where Timberhouse kind of evolved to because building in Greenfield, and I'm sure we'll touch on this as the podcast continues, but um, when you build model ABC, 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 it gets, it gets very redundant. And I think it's, it's fun because of the other people that you get to meet, but you also want to build something that's different. You want to build something that's challenging, something that is more suited to what the, the people that you're building for rather than just having them come to you to build the same thing over and I don't know, maybe paint a wall to suit their color. 
That's excellent. Uh, where did the name come from? And I got to ask you how to pronounce it too. You've said it a few times here, and I, I think in your ads it said one different way, and um, it's spelled kind of uh, differently. So how do you actually say it, and where did the name come from? The name is Timber Hawes Developments. To come up with a name, I, I don't remember the exact details, but it's definitely not easy coming up with a name that you know is going to be timeless and especially to match the branding and that kind of thing. So I have a Dutch background and originally we kind of wanted to lean in, in that direction to kind of bring a little bit of the heritage to it. So John, my business partner, we hashed out different names. My wife was involved in it and eventually we kind of landed on the German word for house. And there's always that German quality. There's always that everybody, when they think of German quality, they think of like really high end. And so Timberhaus kind of really... I don't know, kind of resonated. And then the branding around it really kind of stuck with us and we kind of drew it out and then kind of had the colors and a little bit of the like the green is kind of our color and, and to have that biophilic and naturally inspired living themes, which was just kind of where, what we run with. And it just kind of stuck. And once we had that, that, that the slogan kind of drawn out and, you know, you kind of said it, we just kind of, we knew it was the one. And the, the Dutch word for house is hoose. It just doesn't. It doesn't flow in in the English language enough to to make it a timeless a timeless piece. So I don't know. German's pretty close to Dutch, and I think it kind of pays pays a little bit of tribute that way. But it also pays tribute to quality, and quality is very important to us. Yeah. Well, your homes are definitely known for quality, and uh, my parents they live in a house that was built in the seventies by a German man, and I can tell you for a fact everything is custom in that house, which makes it very difficult to repair anything. Uh, but the quality is there. Like it, the repairs don't happen very frequently. Even uh, my parents' fence, it has uh, metal posts in it. So he worked for a metal company. And that thing will outlive my parents. It will outlive me. It will outlive my kids. Like <laughs> that fence is here to stay. So I know your company for the great community relationships, relationships that you have, uh, for the quality for the incredible branding. Uh, I'm sure that's how a lot of people find you, but where does your company's philosophy come from? Well, I think the the company's philosophy is gonna come from from our roots. And like we talked about where, where we became who we were. Um, our customers come first. When we set expectations of what our branding and, and everything that you just spoke of is, we have to honor that. We go above and beyond to make sure that our clients are are happy. And I've always told our clients, you know, from a pricing standpoint, we're not trying to make a million dollars on each house. We're trying to make a little bit on each house, but build a lot of them. And to not be the biggest infill builder in Edmonton, but to be the best infill builder in Edmonton. All of our team knows that. And we make sure that we stand by that with every single build that we do. And it doesn't matter if we're building um, a she shed in a backyard, like we've done for one client, to a, a $2 million home. I mean, they all get treated the same. And it is very, very important. And um, I think that's the, the key to our success and, and the pillars that we stand on. You and I have spoke at council together. Uh, we've been in city meetings together. We've talked a lot about the importance of uh, not only who you're building for, but also who's around and who their, their neighbors will be. What's some of your practices around working in communities and in infill neighborhoods? Well, I think that's been one of the biggest, uh, I guess, eye-opening things as an infill builder is when you when you get into doing something, you really learn what other builders have done to create sour taste in people's mouths. And that's some so you're 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 not only going in to build just a somebody's house and you know get to know the neighbors, you also have to you're making up for some bad taste in people's mouths so that 
they understand that you're there to look out not only for the, the customers that you're building the house for, but the neighbors beside or beside them or behind them, right? You're, you're, the best way to describe it is when you build in suburbia, your people move in there with the expectations of construction for a couple of years to come. When you build an infill, you're invading people's lives. You're actually, you're, you're, ups- you're uprooting people's day-to-day. They're, they're living in a mature neighborhood. They have big trees. They, it's quiet. They, they expect it to be that way. So you have to really, you have to really become part of the community. And um, as part of the, the CHBA Edmonton region, we created a, an infill toolbox, um, which is a bit of a, a sort of a kit, I guess, of sorts that you, you put together for the neighbors. And you go to the neighbors and say, you know, let's talk about what's going to happen. Let's talk about like, what's, what are we, what are we going to build here? Or do we even know what we're building here? What are the ramifications that are going to happen to your property? Um, talk about what's allowed to happen on their property, whether it's the surveyors jumping over the fence and putting pins down or and that kind of thing. And the impact on their yard, you know, the impact to, to, to the plants, the trees. One of the things at Timberhouse we love to do, we, if, we, if possible, we'll keep every tree we can. Um, I think it is very important. And I know, you know, with the, the city plan to have 2 million trees, I mean, the less we cut down, the better, obviously. Um, and the more we plant, the better. So, you know, helping the neighbors in that regard to understand that aspect of it, to make sure that, that they know that um, in, in our budget, if we have to replace our sidewalk, we'll replace our sidewalk. If we have to replace fence, we replace the fence. Um, essentially, the, the neighboring property, you almost become one of our customers as well. Because they have to have, you know, it's either it's either they phone you and you deal with them one on one, or they phone three one one, and you deal with it on the other end. So we we try to avoid that. I don't think, I mean, you're not going to win every battle, but I think that you know we try to meet every neighbor, whether it's on east, west, north, south, front and back, to give them that primary point of contact, and they meet our entire team. Most times, I try to go out there, you know, if if I'm able to, meet with the neighbors, have that discussion, talk about it. If, if it doesn't work out, the other part of our team will do that. Um, and then at some point I will meet them. You know, it could be just an evening drive or um, go out in the afternoon. And, and if they're out and about, chat with them or, or just knock on their door and introduce yourself. Um, I think I just, it just makes a big difference. It goes a long way. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I live in an infill. I live in an infill neighborhood. I have an infill going in right across the lane and then one like two doors down from me. So I think some people are using your toolkit. Um, but it's like, it's crazy human nature because I find myself like, obviously I'm doing this podcast. I'm a member of idea. I'm a big time proponent of infill, but I find myself sitting around the dinner table, just like with some jackhammering going on being like, Oh my God, I could really do without this right now because it's human nature. Right. But one of the builders, uh, came and knocked on our door and gave us like a a schedule, a rough schedule of when things were going to happen. They just finished demolition. Um, the one across the lane didn't do anything. They just started building and, and, and that kind of thing. And I find myself just like naturally more aggressive towards the ones across the lane. And I say aggressive, like shooting daggers out my window from a safe distance. I'm not saying anything to their faces, but the ones that were next to us that did the demolition, they might've been using your toolkit. So, um, big ups for, for doing that type of thing. I know ideas doing the same type of thing, but it's, it's really complicated in infill situations, isn't it? I, w- I want to ask you about the transition from suburban builds 
to infill builds, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, uh, your, your neighbors, uh, or lack thereof might, uh, might be a little bit more, uh, welcoming of, uh, of some construction noise and activity, but what other kind of challenges did you see, um, and as a difference between infill and suburban builds? I'll back it up one step because I think there is such thing as, as infill in a suburban neighborhood. Um, so you, you, you deal with that on a different level than you would in a mature neighborhood. So we've done a bunch of infill as a, as with the Linkerberg group, um, where you're doing zero lot lines, you're doing that kind of stuff, you know, in those, in those suburban neighborhoods. Um, and it can even be challenging in that regard. So, but the big thing is, and going back to my comment about not liking people and starting to like people and, and that kind of thing, it's really, it's really important to, to acknowledge people. You can't lose that human aspect. And I think it's very, very important. Emails are fine once in a while, but the human interaction of just talking to the neighbors will set you free. And it won't set you free every time because you are going to have some people that just fought a don't like infill. And that, that's fine. I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta respect them as well. Um, but I think that if you interact with the humans and treat them in a human fashion, knowing that you're interrupting their lives, they, they understand it and they get it. The transitioning from suburbia, suburban builds to infill was not difficult. Um, it was actually quite simple. Uh, we've, we've used a lot of the, the techniques and a lot of the, the practice that we've, you know, or experience, I guess, that we've earned in the greenfield and taking that to infill really, really uh, has done us a lot of favors. The very first house that John and I built was before Timberhouse was founded. We started construction, I believe it was in May, and we had a realtor that we were working with at the time said, you know, when you guys are going to go to sell this, kind of give me a heads up or whatever, and, and we'll get this thing going. And she says, how long do you think it's going to take? And we said, well, it should take about five months. And then she said, no. She said, I think you guys are thinking a little bit offline. Infill's different than suburbia. And, and she said that um, it'll probably take about a year and a half. So I think it was about five months and four days till we put the sign up and we sold it. And we sold it on our first open house and they were just blown away. And I think that, and there were some challenges with the neighbors there, even, even at that point in time. Um, but it, would all, it all worked out in the end and flushed out. And you have to remember that was in 2016. And even now the rules have changed dramatically since, since that happened. But the transition was not really that different other than the sense that when you're in the, in the suburban greenfield environment, you're not demoing a house. You get a fresh, you get a, a fresh slate that you're working with. Um, you're not dealing with utilities. You're not dealing with infrastructure um, replacement and, and upgrading and, and that kind of thing. So I, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's a lot less different than people think. It's just a lot, it, there's a lot more work to it. Um, you know, there's a lot more steps and a lot more, I's to dot and T's to cross just because of the, like I, the aforementioned, the, the, the infrastructure or you're adding services or you're upgrading to 200 net power or, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, so every, the, the biggest challenge is, is that we've never built two houses that are the same. And when you're in suburbia, like I said, you're building model ABC, 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 you learn to memorize that stuff. Whereas here, we've never built two houses the same, which makes it a little bit more challenging for the team, but a lot more fun. So this is a perfect transition into some of the issues, or not issues, but um, some of the hurdles that you have to deal with that aren't human related. Uh, moving dirt around for infill, I've heard from you and from others is one of the biggest challenges. Can you tell our listeners about it? Well, it's, it's cost. Um, I think we talk about, we talk about uh, the carbon footprint, we talk about 
noise. We talk about a lot of things just, and again, going back to upsetting people's lives in a mature neighborhood. Um, unfortunately, there is some things in an infill environment that are impactful to the neighbors and noise is one of them. But when you're building infill, it comes down to dollars and cents. And one of the biggest, the biggest challenges that we have as an infill builder is moving dirt. And I don't think that even people that we're building houses for understand the ramifications of what that costs. Um, you could spend, hypothetically, you could spend six to $7,000 per job just moving dirt. That's a huge cost. Like it, it's, a, it's a massive cost where if you don't have a relationship with a suburban builder, or if you don't have a relationship with another builder that's in the infill environment where there's another lot located close by to where you're building, you have to haul that dirt somewhere and bring that dirt back. And there's excess dirt that you need to get rid of. And sometimes in a mature neighborhood, you could end up with four feet of black dirt with roots in it, and nobody wants that material. You haul it to the dump, and you're you're talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars to haul it to the dump per load, plus the trucking fee, plus the backhoe, you know, operating. Um, so the the cost, I I, would, I think on average for an infill home, we budget five to six thousand dollars per house to manage dirt. That's a huge huge fee. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't think people really understand the magnitude of that. I call uh, these kind of costs the unsexy costs of infill. It's like when you go into a reno in your home and you have to update the pipes or whatever, they're the things that you're not excited to, to purchase, but like the new couch or the paint or the wallpaper, you're like so excited for. Uh, dirt <laughs> definitely falls into the category of things you just don't want to pay for. Um, and how many of your clients would you say know that dirt is a big, big line item on their sheet coming in? I would say, I would say zero, none. It, I call it, you, it, I call it a hidden cost. Um, because you know, when you, when you, when somebody comes to you and they hypothetically they want to build a duplex or they want to build two skinnies or they want to do whatever, they don't understand. You have to subdivide it. Oh wait, you have to knock the house over before you knock the house over. You have to remove the asbestos. And you got to talk, we, we walk everybody through that right from the very beginning, especially even with garden suites, um, which we can talk about in a little bit here. But um, the first thing we talk about is hidden costs. What does that look like? Right. And so people don't understand, like, how, how can it cost more to go to a 10 foot basement? I want a 10 foot basement, but I don't want to pay anymore. It's like, well, first and foremost, you're probably hauling out an extra 10, 12 loads of dirt. So you're looking at $3,500. And they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, where are you going to put this stuff? In the back alley? Like it, it just doesn't work, right? So that that's a huge challenge. And then you talk about asbestos. And they've already purchased this home and came to us and said, we want to knock this thing down and put a new house. So well, have you have you tested for asbestos? They're like, no, what's that? It's like, well, for $750, I'll tell you. So you get, get a guy in there for $750 and then and then they go in there and they do the test. And it's like, oh, by the way, it's to to remediate this is gonna cost you 15 grand. And like, well, we didn't have, we don't have 15 grand. Like we didn't even think about the 15 grand. I'm like, well, there's a hidden cost. So it, it, it there is, there's a lot of that that does happen. Um, so if, I think what we do is we try to be open and upfront right from the beginning. And um, we don't, we don't upcharge those hidden costs. They are what they are. Um, so for our clients, the, they have the comfort of knowing that we're, we're a home builder. We're not trying to make money on every little piece of, of, of those hidden costs, but they have to be done. You, you can't get around them. 
So you and I met in 2017 and uh, I don't remember the ex- like exactly when we met, but Idea was hosting like a round table with everyone who was looking to become a mayor or become a counselor that year in that election. And so we hosted it downtown at a, at a hotel. And I remember you and John came up to me and said, we want to be known for Garden Suites in Edmonton. We want to be like... I can't remember if you used the the word kings, but I've always associated you two with that. And you're like, can you help us get there? And boy, have you <laughs> you two succeeded at that uh, through Yay Garden Suite the association, uh, through what you do every year, how many garden suites uh, that you bring online for people for their dreams to come true. Uh, why was that one of your main focuses at the beginning? Well, I think the one of the main focuses was affordability and affordability for infill is means different things for different people. When you talk about a first time home buyer buying an infill, it's almost impossible. But if they do that by offsetting their income with a secondary, with a, a subsidiary income of a garden suite or a basin suite, it makes it more affordable. Um, it could be a young person buying their parents' home off of them while they age in place in the backyard in a garden suite. It all comes down to dollars and cents. If you look at, if you drive around Edmonton, you look around Edmonton, to back it up even further, I knew in 2013 and 14 that infill was the next big thing coming in Edmonton, and um, there wasn't very many people doing it. And I think one of the one of the very first ones was like Urban Age. You know, there was there was the onesie twosie guys that were out there that you know getting the, taking the lead on that. Um, and I knew like it's it doesn't seem like it's doable, but if you drive around Edmonton, there's a lot of houses that are derelict like, need to come down. A lot of people want to move back to where they they came from. And so we're seeing that a lot today where Bert and Ernie want to move back to North Kenora or, you know, they want to move back to Grosvenor or they want to move back to. So, and I, and I think it's kind of a, a bit of a pattern where you're seeing young people grow up, move to the burbs. They hit that age or they, they, they get that big promotion or they, they graduate from university and they get that big paying job and they can actually afford to, to spend some money. So they want to go back to where they grew up. And in, like I said, in some cases, it might be they, they're taking over their parents' home and they renovate it and they put a garden suite in the back. Or we, in some cases, let's knock the whole kit and caboodle over, keep the family together, right, and, and build a new, a new home with a garden suite in the back and in some cases, even a basement suite. Um, we have a gentleman in, in uh, North Kenora, Noah, who, you know, he came to us and he didn't build per se with us, but he kind of came in halfway through. Um, and wanted to have a garden suite and a basement suite with his house. And the reason for that was because he did all the math, ran the numbers, putting 20% down on a $850,000 property with the offset income from the garden suite and the basement suite, he didn't have a mortgage. Very unusual. Like it's the, to me, you know, growing up as buying my first home, I wouldn't even have thought of that. In a way, you know, a lot of people don't. They just assume they want to have their first house and, and however they got to pay for it, they're going to pay for it. But, and some people don't, some people don't, they want the privacy. They don't want to have people living in their home. So they put the garden suite in the back so that they still have that seclusion of, of having that person in a separate building, but they're, they're paying for the mortgage of their home. Garden suites were kind of the, I don't know, it kind of seemed like the future. And the, the future is here now from when we were first dreaming about it. And um, you've kind of seen it with with COVID come and go and Airbnb really come bubbling out of the, out of the water and uh, VRBO. Um, my business partner, John has a beautiful garden suite in, in North Strathcona. Um, and it's generating money. Like, I don't think he even imagined what it, what it could do. 
And, you know, it, people don't realize that the river valley that Edmonton has, the, the city that Edmonton is with the festivals and the everything that, that the city provides to us, people want to come to Edmonton. So, you know, why would you want to stay in a hotel and catch COVID when you can just stay in a garden suite and have your own space, be above a garage, you're not in a basement, you got the freedom to come and go as you please. And it just makes a lot of sense. Ryan and I can fight about this uh, in the outtakes, but uh, <laughs> my husband and I, Ellie, went for ice cream at Kind Ice Cream, uh, my, my favorite ice cream spot. They have a fabulous flavor this month, uh, raspberry cheesecake. And we were walking around the neighborhood and he, he was like, yeah, why wouldn't you have a secondary suite and a garden suite? You wouldn't have to pay a mortgage. It would be great. You could live in the neighborhood you want. What are we waiting for? Like, let's, let's start talking about this more seriously. Well, the best time to build a house was yesterday. The next best time is today. So, and, and just to, to touch on your kind ice cream, there's a, there's a new ice cream shop in Westmount called Twice Cream. And I'll put a little plug in for Romeo and you guys should go check it out. Um, it's just, and I'm going to pull this off the top of my head. I think it's just north of 111th Ave on 120, might be 127th Street. And so you got to go check that out. Romeo is actually our very first salesperson for Timberhaus. And he helped us with the egg. We had a big uh, garden suite party. That was in 2019, I believe. And he was one of the hosts that we had there. And his dream was always own his first ice cream shop. And now that he knows how much work it is, he says he would never have done it because he's making so much ice cream. It's all, he makes it himself and it's done really well. So I'll put a plug in for him. So go check out uh, Twice Cream in Westmount. He, he just gained two customers for sure. And uh, yeah, you, I don't think you knew that you were talking to two ice cream fiends here. So that's, uh, that's really good information. <laughs> um, back to this garden suite thing. I, I was among those people that thought that garden suites were very uh, niche and a very obscure way of creating density that wouldn't really get to the point that it is now. I'm a believer now. I, uh, I stayed in um, like a laneway home in Vancouver that like completely changed my mind and also one in Banff. And I want that here. So I, I'm curious to see what kinds of uh, garden suites or what, what are your clients asking for in their garden suites primarily? Uh, is it space? Is it height? Is it like a deck or is it location? Or what, what are you looking for when you're selecting a garden suite site? Well, so we don't, we don't select garden suite so sites per se. Um, every garden suite that we've built um, has been for somebody. So multiple, multiple facets of, of what, pe what people want. Uh, first and foremost, Noah, who we spoke about in North Kenora, um, he just wanted it to offset his mortgage so that I don't think there's any real specifics as for specific items on the garden suite that he wanted. He just wanted to make sure that he could get the, the income to, and, and make it in a, I guess, in a rentable location so that he's able to um, get that money. Um, but we've seen in Westmount, we built a, a ground level garden suite very, I would call it a, a, a quite a high-end uh, garden suite uh, for the in-laws to come flying in from Vancouver. Uh, it's a very specific um, destination just for the in-laws. So it was something that they were very specific about what they wanted. It had to have the high quality head. It was it was a very expensive garden suite with an, an attached single car garage beside it. So one level, heated floor, single car garage, beautiful place, very inclusive, like no stairs. Um, again, very specific on no stairs. They didn't want stairs. Um, so that was very specific to them. So perhaps once, um, depending as they get older, maybe the, the kids will end up renting out the garden suite. I don't know. We'll see what that 
ends up being right in a few years. We've we've just actually did another one, not not an infill, but on an acreage uh, in the back. And same thing, ground level for the parents. They spend their, their winters in Florida, um, fly back and forth, and that's specific to them. Um, we just finished one. It was on the north side. I don't remember the specific neighborhood, but it was, again, at ground level for the mom. Uh, the mom lived in the house, and the son wanted to take over her home. Um, she was very specific about her wants and needs inside the home. Again, no stairs. Uh, she needed to have her little deck off the back so she could have her space facing south so she could still be out in the sun. But she wanted to have a little bit of a cover on so she could still do her smoking out there. Um, wonderful lady. like just, And she's uh, been a huge advocate for Timberhouse. So, um, again, a very, very specific, not two-story, only on the ground level. And that was actually very unique because the lot was, I think, 55 feet wide or maybe a little bit wider. So they still had the existing garage. And then we built the, with the site coverage, we were still able to build a ground level garden suite. So I think it was 600 square feet or something like that. Um, beautiful little, little suite. And then uh, where else did we build one? We just built, we just finished one up in uh, Bonnie Dune. Uh, that one is for... I believe the no the kids the mom again the mom's moving into that one that's a, on a two story that one's getting a, a lift put in it for her so more of an inclusive design that was a, a big garden suite so again for the parents so I, I guess the theme that I, I'm as I'm speaking here I'm talking a lot of it is for multi generational living um, and you're seeing it and again it's back to the comment we made earlier in the podcast um, regarding affordability so. You know, you get these kids that are, are have an older home here in, in Bonnie Dune and, and the mom's going to be in there. We're actually doing, I'm actually, as we're talking, I'm going to pull up the address for this one. I won't say the address, but I'll give you the neighborhood. But we're building one for a wonderful older lady in northern Inglewood. And this one is going to have an elevator. So very specific. Um, and again, inclusive design. When we talk about inclusive design for the listeners out there that don't know what that means, it means that it's wheelchair accessible. Um, and it's either designed or built with a lift in the stairway or have an elevator that can accommodate a, a wheelchair. Uh, the interior doors have to all be three feet so they can accommodate a wheelchair and then have a radius for people to spin around, you know, in the kitchen, in the, li- in the living room and in the bedroom so that they're able to make it fully inclusive for, you know, someone that has a tougher access or a tougher ability to get around. And then I guess, again, for listeners that don't know, you can either do a 50 meters squared or a 60 meters squared, which is five, roughly 540 square feet of just normal um, normal build. Or if you go to, to 60 meters squared, which is roughly 648 square feet or something like that. And that has to be designed with inclusivity. doesn't mean you have to execute each one of those components, but you have to have that, have the ability to adapt to, to those types of things. So if everything is custom for your garden suites, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing with uh, designing and building these garden suites with the regulations that we have? Site coverage is huge. Um, it's, a, it's a challenge, maybe not site coverage as much as the maximum that you're allowed to build. So site coverage will come into it, into it twofold. Site coverage can be either be you have a really small lot and you can, you know, site coverage becomes a problem because you can only build so big on that lot. But if you have a massive lot, you're only allowed to build that garden suite so big. So you could end up only being maybe 10% of your site coverage of your lot, but you're maxed out for what the bylaws allow you to build. And so that can become a challenge. So the, the current challenge we had in Lansdowne was, again, include multi-generational living. living. So we had an inclusive, all-inclusive design built uh, for an oversized garden suite. Our site coverage was only, I think we were only at around 10%, maybe 11%. 
but we had maxed out above and beyond that 60 meters squared and the 130 meters squared of the total building. So we were a little bit over oversized, 100 square feet over on the garage, and we were only 15 or 20 square feet over on the garden suite itself. And because of those two things, it, it became impossible. The city, their allowance to go for a variance, you know, if you have one variance, usually you can you can kind of push it, push it through and, and massage it through. Um, if you have more than one and you have and you have very challenging neighbors, it can be it can be very difficult to to get that push through. So that would be the biggest challenge. I think that's the one of the toughest things. The other one I think is is in depending which neighborhood you're in, the infrastructure can be a bit challenging. So if you have a if you're building a garden suite with a bungalow, or sorry, I shouldn't say a bungalow, I'll say a bi-level. So it's a very shallow basement of the house. And we'll call it the poop line runs out the front of the house, the sewer line. It's very difficult to make the poop run from the garden suite down up into the house and then back down. So it can become very costly because you, you end up in some cases, you either got a choice of a, of a lift station or a grinder pump, or you have to end up running the sewer around the house and tied into the front. So it can become a little bit more costly in that regard. Um, and then of course you got power. So in some cases in, in, as we're going to see in suburbia in the next few years here, it's going to become very challenging uh, where there's not 200 access to 200 amp power um, in green in infill. Luckily, you know, we deal with a lot of overhead power, so it's not as challenging. We can upgrade to 200 amp pretty easily, but if we're in some neighborhoods, because there is mature neighborhoods with power that is underground, that can become very extremely costly to upgrade that to 200 amp. In some cases, I would say your minimum to minimum to upgrade underground power is about $20,000. And so you get 20,000 for this, 20,000 for that, 20,000 for this. I mean, you could be $60,000 in and you haven't even done anything yet. So very expensive. The unsexy costs. <laughs> it, it, all, it all comes back down to affordability, does it not? Like we, this is something right from the very beginning. Why garden suites? Well, you're trying to create affordability. You know, the city talks about this missing middle. I like to include garden suites in the missing middle, even though I know they're not the missing middle, but I think that's a big component of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, I know a lot of people um they'll come to me and they'll ask like oh infill it's not affordable so why are we pushing for it and i'm like well infill becomes affordable when density is involved in the conversation and so once you start including garden suites secondary suites duplexes triplexes uh like stacked row housing like this all makes it m much more accessible for people to access the neighborhoods they a want to stay in or b want to live in uh where there's awesome amenities like Two scoop ice cream, right? That's, that's a twice scoop. Twice scoop. Twice scoop. Oh, twice cream. <laughs> uh, well, I am uh, so behind the scenes look at uh, in development. Ryan writes down all the fact checks for uh, the post interview um, that him and I go through. So I believe he has it down, <laughs> but him and I are definitely going. Um, but yeah, if if we don't allow more density in those neighborhoods, then it's harder for Romeo to get a lot of business from foot, bike, and car. Like we need it from all different modes of transportation uh, for him to be successful. Is it, don't, they call, don't they call the 15 minute? Uh... 15 minute communities. <laughs> so you don't just build garden suites. Uh, I know you build garden suites at a volume. I think you were aiming for about 40 this year, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, right? We're gonna do 40 projects this year. That's our, our, our goal. Um, that'll be kind of our capacity, I think, is where we'll try to be moving forward. Um, and, the, you know, that can include uh, 
a project could be, like I said, it could be a she shed, it could be a garden suite, it could be houses. Um, the majority of our projects have now been houses uh, where it's, it's one for one. We take a house down, put one house up. Um, we're doing multiple, multiple of those projects and they're starting to really catch on because I think that, again, we're trying to keep them affordable. And, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of projects we count as one, but it could be a house with a basement suite, could be with a garden suite as well. Um, and I think, you know, as we talked offline before the podcast, but we're going to do a triplex, which will be our first triplex, um, which is really exciting for us and uh, exciting for the homeowner that we're, or I guess you shouldn't say the homeowner, we'll call it the, the business owner of the, of the business that we're going to build it for. Um, but it's a purpose-built rental. And again, the missing middle, you know, a triplex with three suites. So a suite under each, under each, uh, under each unit um, with a garage for each unit. Uh, it's a really neat little project that uh, um, we're kicking off here. Uh, the house was demoed actually this morning. So you can actually pull it up online and check out uh, the Timberhouse Instagram. I'm sure it's on there. I know it's on the LinkedIn, so you can check that out. And uh, they're, they're really excited to get it kicked off. And we're, uh, we're probably, the development permit is in. So we're going for building permit right now. So it'll probably be a, probably about a month away before we start digging the hole, but cross our fingers, it'll be a month before we start digging the hole. But uh, it's going to be an exciting project for Timberhouse and, and it's going to kick off uh, a whole different, hopefully to hold a different avenue of what we're, of what we're doing. Yeah, that's so incredibly exciting. It takes gumption to go from single detached to a triplex. What happened? What, wh- how did you t- decide to take the leap? Well, we, we were approached to, to build it, but I also, you have to remember uh, with our history of, with the Linkenberg group, that's all I used to do is duplexes and triplexes and fourplexes and, and that kind of thing. So we, again, we can bring, it's, it's a little bit different again with the infill um, rules have changed even from a, you know, from a fire code standard and, and that kind of thing in the building industry, but that's our forte. That's what we did back in the day. So we can bring a little bit of our experience that we, we had from back in the day to the forefront now and, and hopefully execute this one pretty simply. Um, I think it'll go, it'll go pretty smooth. And um, in this case here, it was uh, the infrastructure is pretty simple. This is a, a one title, one block, one owner. It's we're not subdividing into all parcels or we're not kind of minimizing it. It's actually just unit A, B and C, and it should be a pretty straightforward build. If you need a contact for uh, fire, we interviewed an amazing guy, Cameron Bardas from the city of Edmonton. Uh, yeah, if you already know him, great. Uh, but yeah, I love Cam. He's the best. Uh, and for all those listening, 40 projects a year, especially for an infill builder, that is a high volume infill builder. Uh, most other companies, they're doing like five, max 10. Uh, so over the last, at least I've known you for four years, I've seen you grow substantially. Uh, and I love seeing your signs all over the city. Yep. And I, I don't, I, I think I don't want to be known as a high volume infill builder, but I definitely want to, you know, we, we've, we've built this machine with the the people that we've had, like the, the our field staff that have been with a couple of them came from the Lincolnburg side of things as well. For, for us to do say 40 projects a year, as a superintendent, when I was at my, my maximum back in the day, I was watching 80 units by myself. So, and what 80 units is a lot different than, you know, 20 custom because 80 units, when you're doing the, again, unit ABC, 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 um, it's a lot easier to keep track of. Change orders are very minimal. Uh, floor plans are all the same. So it's quite easy to, to monitor things. Um, so we have three guys in the field, one, two site superintendents, and they're, they're both with production backgrounds. Again, so they can handle, you know, they can handle 20 jobs each, no problem. 
um, which they're obviously not doing. We're probably doing about 20 at a time and turning that over twice a year. Um, and then we have a full-time service guy slash warranty slash deck builder slash fence builder. Like a lot of the, you have to have that hands-on stuff for the infill stuff. Um, especially this morning, you know, or I shouldn't say this morning, we demoed the house this morning and then we're going to dig another basement in Grosvenor where we're actually using the lot we tore down to store dirt, ironically speaking from earlier in the podcast, but we need to shore that one. So for those people out there that don't know what shoring is, um, it's another hidden cost that you get to endure when you're, when you're building that. And because we're building beside an, a, a skinny home that was built about three years ago, the dirt is very unstable around the foundation. So we know that that dirt is going to fall in. So what we want to do is to preserve that neighbor's property is we're, as we dig the hole, we'll punch uh, four by sixes into the ground and put three quarter inch plywood on, on the backside to maintain that landscaping and that, uh, that grading while we dig the foundation in and keep it safe for our, our cribbers. And again, there's probably in this particular case, this is a very unique one off, but it's probably 50 feet of shoring on each side. So again, another hidden cost of, I don't know, well, probably I'm going to guess $5,000 uh, just with lumber and, and then our manpower and our guys there on site to do that. Um, but again, yeah, that's another one of those hidden costs that we spoke about before. Yeah. Well, and everyone I've met from your team is so lovely. Uh, they all have that um, very community and customer forward mindset as they, as they build or as they work towards building those homes. Um, we've talked a little bit about things that could be modified or, or could be uh, more aligned with the way that the city's growing. You and I know that there's a zoning bylaw renewal going on right now. Are there things that your customers, uh, your clients are asking for that are just impossible to do because of our current zoning bylaw? There are. Um, and I know we don't have a couple hours for this podcast, so we'll try to keep it to a minimum. But um, yes, there's a couple of pet peeves that I have that I think I, I you know, I'm very excited to see change. Uh, first and foremost is the height regulation, uh, 8.9 meters. I wouldn't say that we're competing with Greenfield, but we're playing with them on the same playing field. Um, I think that we should have the same the same height allowances because it doesn't make any sense to have taller buildings in uh, the surrounding areas rather than the, the mature neighborhoods. And another thing is, is that a lot of rooftop patios are becoming very, very popular in Edmonton. Um, people are like, they want to have the view of the downtown and the river valley and the trees and the canopies and all that kind of stuff. So we need to allow the regulations and not, not, not limit people's dreams by giving them an eight foot main floor to achieve a rooftop patio. Um, we want people to be able to still have that inclusivity of having a nine foot basement, a nine foot, or even a 10 foot main floor with a nine foot second floor and still have that ability to have that, that rooftop patio with living space up there. Um, in my opinion, and, and I'm, you know, I'm just one small person in the big city, but I think that if I had a rooftop patio, it's got to be functional. And I want to have it that if I'm, if that's my, if that's my man cave, or if that's where, where I'm going to go watch the hockey game, I want to be able to lock my doors on the main floor, go upstairs and know that I don't have to go back down. So by having that, it might mean I have a coffee bar up there or I have a wet bar up there with a bathroom up there and that I'm able to go there, watch the hockey game, have a beer, have a coffee and, and then shut that down and be able to take a shower and go to bed or whatever, whatever that looks like. Um, with the current rules and regulations, you, you might be lucky to get a broom closet on the same level as the, the rooftop patio and that's all you're going to get which makes it very, very challenging, or you're very limited on your design of that rooftop patio with, if you get that living space up there and it makes the house look very 
misshaped or, or very different than what you would actually like to see it look like just because you're trying to, to manipulate that roof line to accommodate the city bylaws. So we need to see that 10 meters. I know Mariah, we've talked about trying to get 12, shoot for the moon, you know, settle for a little bit less than that. Um, and I think that's what we'll get. I think we'll get our 10 meters. Um, that just, just that 10 meters will make the world a difference on a lot of design, a lot of different things. I also think that the, the way that they address the grading, where they take the points for the heights should be addressed as well, but that's for a different time and a different place. Um, and then another big pet peeve I have is rear attached garages with the, with the mature neighborhood overlay, not allowing front attached garages. People, again, we talk about elderly couples. We talk about people that don't want to be outside. They want to go inside a garage park, go through that breezeway, go in their house. So there's a, it's a twofold situation because if you built, if usually if you have the rear attached garage, you're going to deal with a rear setback issue and you're going to deal with the rear attached garage. So your two variances there right away, you're up against, uh, you know, you got, you know, you have a battle on your hands. Um, and I do think that they should be a permitted use. I don't think that should be, there should be a variance to, to have a rear attached garage. It doesn't make any sense to me that they're worried about sunshade about from a breezeway to the neighbor's yard, but yet you can have a garden suite, which is two stories tall as you know, it's, there's just a lot of things that are not aligned there. So those are two big things that, that I think, uh, will help us out a lot in the, in the next, hopefully within a year when these uh, zoning bylaw changes are completed. Yeah. Ryan and I have talked at length on past episodes about our feelings about rear attached garages and how it is ridiculous that in if you live in a certain area of the city, you can't have it, uh, but in other areas, you're totally fine um, because we're supposed to be an equitable city. We're supposed to be a winter city, uh, and it shouldn't be dictated where you live on how you can access your different spaces. But that is for us to fight for. <laughs> so we'll see how the next year goes. Um, the last thing we do with all of our guests is a call to action to our listeners. It gives you an opportunity to talk straight to the people who are listening uh, and also lets them get to know what's on your mind, uh, what's important to you. And so give her. <laughs> well, I think the comment that, it, that we've talked about offline, but I think it's very important for uh, members of, of the community, not just people that are looking to build or people that are building or people that have been in the, in the community for 40 years in some cases, get to know all the builders, get to know the people. If you get to know the people, um, eventually you're going to get to know the counselors. You're going to get to know, keep up to date on the rules of what infill is, the zoning bylaws, keep up to date on, on all that stuff because things are always changing. And I know as a builder um, growing in suburbia, fit, it was always basically the same until 2008 when high efficient things started to come out. Then things started changing. Windows started changing with U values. Hot water tanks started having the uh, high efficient hot water tanks, furnaces. So now you're dealing with placement of venting on the outside of houses. That was the start of when things just started to every year. It was always something new. And as everybody knows, we're going for net zero whenever we had tried to achieve it. Um, you know, we have a city plan that we're trying to address. We have zoning bylaw changes that are part of that city plan. We're trying to create that 50 minute commute. Um, we're trying to live, work and play in, the, in these, in, in each community. And I think that people need to understand their community, understand what the rules are, understand these kinds of things. And I think the builders were, I'm not here just to build houses, but I'm here to educate people. My goal as a builder is to become part of the community in each one of the communities we build and not just one community. And I think it's very important for us to put ourselves out there instead of giving builders a bad name, let's, let's be at the forefront 
and help recreate and make Edmonton much, much better in the, in the mature neighborhoods. Yeah, we're all responsible for our awesome city. Absolutely. Well, that was a beautiful way to end the conversation today, Don. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this afternoon. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Look forward to listening to the podcast and I can't wait to come back. Sounds great. Thanks, Don. Well, that was great. I love having builders on. They're, you know, the experts that we pretend to be. Um, they're actually like boots on the ground doing it. And Don has such an interesting past, uh, building his way all the way up from Framer all the way to the present of a building company. It's a feel-good story and everyone loves an underdog. Yeah. And the products that he builds are just gorgeous. Like they're great craftsmen. Like yeah. it's just a lovely product. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Even the garden suites. I didn't realize how many garden suites they had done. Uh, and then looked up on like in preparation for this, I was looking up on their uh, social media and their website. They're all custom. They're all fantastic. Uh, yeah. I didn't realize how much like fancy architecture and, and builds were being done in the garden suite realm, but yeah, they're, they definitely have the corner of that market. Yeah. It's something I really appreciate about Edmonton is that we allow for garden suites because it clearly fits this need that people like whether they want to age in place or they want a place for their in-laws or they want to create a second income or they just want an office outside of their house. Like yeah. there is a demand for it. Yeah. I always thought it was kind of a niche thing, but it's, yeah, I, I thought it was going to be one of those things that was kind of like uh, come and gone, but here we are. I'm actually a big believer in them now. I would love to see the day where we could start subdividing lots in half and getting garden suites on separate titles, but that's a discussion for another day. Fact check. I think there's only one thing that we need to fact check. Uh, the national anthem singer with the Oilers, Robert Clark. Robert Clark. Gotta say it. Um, he's been around for a few years now. Before that, it was Paul Lorio. Um, unfortunately, he died. Robert Clark's been doing a great job. Um, just like garden suites, I was a little bit like, you know, I wasn't really into Robert Clark when he began. I was always, you know, man of the past. Paul Lorio was my guy. Robert Clark has grown on me. But anyways, yeah, we didn't know the name of uh, his name in the episode, but Robert Clark, can't say it enough. Um, where do we want to start with here in terms of topics? Uh, I think dirt management was the thing that stayed uh, with me the most here. You don't really think about it. Every single property that you build on, you're going to have to excavate out for basements or whatever. You're demoing the old house and pulling out the old basement. There's always going to be some excess dirt that you're pulling off a site. What do you do with that? So I found that to be a very interesting um, problem that I don't think you really think of in infill situations is like, what do you do with that dirt and where does it go? Is that something you were familiar with before we talked to Don? So Don brought this up to me, I want to say a couple of years ago, uh, and we were in a meeting with a few other builders, like infill builders in Edmonton, and like the spark that went off in the room when he started talking about dirt management and how into it, like there, I think there was four, maybe five other builders on this meeting call, and that like that was the rest of the meeting. That's all we talked about was, was dirt and how to solve the problem. So I've always thought about it, but I don't know how to solve it for them. No. And I don't know enough about soil too. I think you would have to understand like what is in the different soils, what would make it good. Yeah. That's just not in my wheelhouse at all. 
Yeah, Don mentioned it a little bit, like there's different kinds of soils um, that you can use. And, and I know in like suburban context, there's different types of soils that you can use for like in your parks, you can use like a crappier type of soil for if you're creating berms for noise attenuation or something, you can use a different kind of soil and they have different classifications. But an infill, like you're basically pulling out clay and probably some topsoil. Where do you put it? You probably you have to put some of it back, I guess. But like, what do you do with the excess? Like, unless you're you're not building berms or parks on your parcels, so you have to find somewhere to dump it. So yeah, it's a it's a unique problem. Did you ever find a solution, or did they ever find a solution? No, I think it's still outstanding. I think everyone's still trying to figure it out. <laughs> well, to our dear listeners, call in. Let us know what your solution to this problem is, and we'll make sure to implement it. That's great. The other conversation I really liked was when we talked about people moving back to the neighborhoods that they grew up with, or maybe they have strong memories in maybe um, their grandparents lived there or one of their best friends. Uh, I know I went to junior high at Otwell mm-hmm. and I love that neighborhood. And then I went to high school at McNally. Uh, I went to high school at McNally specifically because of the location. I love that you can see downtown from it. And like, now you see like those neighborhoods have great infill projects in it and how did you pick your neighborhood that you live in now? Because it's close to where I grew up. <laughs> and well, I mean, sort of, uh, you, because it's close to where my parents and my wife's parents still live is kind of it. So with the young baby, it's nice to have proximity to some potential babysitters. Um, but yeah, it's we. I don't think we ever even considered not staying south west because we both grew up in the southwest just like a comfort thing you know change is hard um i think maybe it's like an inherent thing right it's you kind of are comfortable in these areas so i'm just gonna ask you are you moving back to where you grew up would you ever do that uh i really like millwoods millbourne area i think it's a really fantastic community but i'm not sure it has enough uh, of a strong transit connection and like enough small like walkable commercial nodes that I would want. Yeah. I'd want to live somewhere a little bit denser. And so while like I love those neighborhoods, I think I'd still want to live a little bit closer to the universities in downtown, but still like my parents still live there. I'd still be there all the time. Agreed. Yeah. That's kind of like us too. So, I mean, I grew up in a cul-de-sac in Blue Quill and like, you know, that second or third gen suburbs or whatever so inside the hand day but just barely mm-hmm. and uh i don't know if i could go back there like it's i mean it's close to century park now i guess like it's like a probably 20 minute walk from my parents place to century park but first of all i don't need that much space second of all it's not ideal so i feel like where we are now is like a little bit of a compromise we're like central but still kind of close to where we grew up so there's something definitely there um yeah don mentioned that infill pressure kind of comes from everywhere like people uh, get lots through um, being gifted by their parents or grandparents or whatever. So there's lots of different ways that, that people kind of gain lots in these areas. Yeah. I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I have a uh, good friends that just moved into Crestwood and they were uh, sold the lot at a discount because they knew the owners. And so they didn't even put it on the market. And now they live in this beautiful old home uh, that they're going to do a ton of renos to, to make it meet their needs of today. But yeah, I think it's really interesting to see how people find their homes and their neighborhoods. Oh, just that neighborhood is really close to her parents too. Like it's very close to where she grew up. Yeah. I was just going to say that's one way to combat the, the affordability issue in infill neighborhoods is like, you know, get to know the owners, get them to discount their law and give it to you (laughs) (laughs) or have parents that live in the neighborhood. There. 
solve the affordability problem. <laughs> Make it an emotional decision instead of a financial one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. Exactly. Actually, I, my wife and I, we did that when we were, uh, we knew we were moving out of Ritchie. Um, well, we didn't know we were moving out of Ritchie, but we needed more space in the house we were in in Ritchie. Uh, there was a house, uh, uh, like a newer infill that was built in Ritchie and we stalked the owners. Um, we were those weirdos that put, uh, in their mailbox, like, oh my God, we love your house. If you ever thought of selling, please contact us. Never heard from them, <laughs> but, uh, we start, we like walked our dog by that house every single day in hopes of like, you know, becoming friends with those owners. Maybe they would invite us over, you know, maybe they don't need that house anymore. Oh, Hey, we could use that house. It never materialized, but I definitely understand. Yeah. One of my uh, girlfriends out in Millwoods, she loved, loved this house. Uh, they bought it in like 2019. Uh, it is unbelievably gorgeous i like and it totally fits their personality but when they went to go put a bid in they put a put a bid in with like a story about them and what they want like what they were hoping for for their life in that home she was told like that was a big reason why oh really they went, their bid won yeah they weren't the highest but uh they felt an emotional connection between the two of them and they're still friends to this day humans are emotional beings you got to take advantage of that even in, when you're trying to get a lot yeah. <laughs> Is this how people are? Uh, talking about emotions, you and I and ice cream. For you who loves ice cream and me who partially loves ice cream, I have way too strong of feelings for this. But Twice Cream is Don's new favorite spot. I know you and I haven't had the chance to check it out yet, but the flavors on their website do look phenomenal and like a mix of kind and made by Marcus where it's a little bit interesting and they got their staples in there. Well, we should definitely go for two scoops. Um, yeah, I'm looking through their flavors too. It looks fantastic. It's lots of good stuff, but you know where my allegiances lie when it comes to ice cream. So it's going to take a lot for me to convert, but I'm willing to try it. I love that it's popped up in this weird little commercial area in Westmount too. Like, I love that it's just not on a main street. I know. And so actually when I went to go look up uh, a bit more about this ice cream shop, it is located next to what used to be this antique mall or antique store um, that in like 2019, 2020, uh, maybe even 2018, they were like starting to look at like redeveloping, um, just expanding to include a coffee shop or something because uh, as an antique shop alone, that's fabulous, but to like bring in something else into the community. Mm-hmm. And they got hit with a hydrant cost for $750,000. No. <laughs> You're kidding me. That never happens. Yeah. So how did that play out? <laughs> um, well, Upcore told them that the area was deficient and they needed to upgrade it because they were the first ones to look to do something like this. And of course, the business owner was like, well, that's bananas. We're literally a tiny shop. Um, he has this huge YouTube channel that he posts videos like, a few a week and they get like 40,000 hits each. Oh my God. And so he put it up on his YouTube channel and then um, I think CTV picked it up in the news and that's where I saw it. And then I used it as an example of why we needed an infill cost share program. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And it actually played, played out. And now there's an ice cream shop there. Did they end up building a hydrant? Do you know? They didn't end up building a hydrant and the owner of that building ended up selling 
Um, oh no! So I'm not sure. <laughs> no, uh, I'm not sure if the ice cream shop took totally over or if it's like two uh, businesses in one. We'll have to go check it out when we try out the ice cream. But oh, I can't wait. I I hope the YouTube man from Curiosity Inc is just killing it in whatever he's doing right now. Yeah, and he doesn't have to build any hydrants. Well, that is, you know, the usual. And we're looking to expand the hydrant program uh, to include commercial only buildings because right now it, it if you're building a residential or a mixed use building, um, you're good, you're golden, you're good to go. Uh, but for commercial, it doesn't apply yet. So stay tuned in the next year. Hopefully, we can expand the program to fit everyone's needs. Nice. It's a very narrow scope. You're right, but it's nice when a pilot project expands, and it's not even a pilot anymore, right? It's it's full time. Yeah, permanent became permanent. This time last year. Permanent program. Yeah. Oh, it's so, the, so the, weird that you it's know, been a year. Curiosity Inc. Yeah, Curiosity Inc. had to had to sell their building. And here we are now. But uh, yeah, that's too bad. But it's good to hear that it's expanding. It's great. And it's uh, you can apply for the funding anytime at any point of the year. Uh, there is four intake periods uh, that they let you know whether you were successful or not. And before you apply for the money, uh, for the funding, there's a risk-based application process you have to go through. And we're up to over 90% of applications end up not needing to go for funding right now. So we'll be updating the standards soon because clearly uh, they need some updating. <laughs> clearly they do. But clearly the, the program's working, which is huge. So that's excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we head out, let's give a shout out to one of our listeners. Uh, so I had a meeting early last week, um, and this wonderful guy named Chad at the end of the meeting was like, oh, by the way, I listened to your podcast and it's fabulous and I've learned a ton (laughs) and it just melted my heart. So thank you so much, Chad. That was such a great way to kick off a day. Yeah. Thanks, Chad. That's excellent. Well, thanks for hanging out with me, Ryan. Yeah. See you twice. (laughs) 